Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. Gabow. Gabow. No. <laughs> and I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson. That's right. Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. Yeah. I'm sorry I called it Gabow. No, I no. Just, that's, I've been thinking it's, about this a lot over the last a, week. We changed the name of the firm for folks who didn't listen last week. So it's, instead of GBA, it's GBAO. I feel like it's like Kapow. Like it's just got like yeah. punch to it. Yeah. G-B-A-O. Yeah. Okay. I'll say it right from now on. I just no, no, get that one out of my system. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. <laughs> you, my children, everyone on Facebook <laughs> apparently like desperately wants to say Gabow or G-Bow. <laughs> like, some, it scratches some itch that everybody has. G-Bow apparently. makes me want to eat. Chinese pork buns, though. <laughs> like, so. Like, the, that one, like, in national, I don't know which term, if it's B or C. That Bow, I, wow, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so, what have I missed on Twitter this week? Oh, yes. I was like, what am I going to tell Kristen about what's been happening on Twitter? Um, I mean, I feel like there are things that you would mostly have seen in the news, like Trump saying oranges instead of origin and not remembering where his dad was born. I have not seen these things. <laughs> these are not things that have permeated my news bubble. Aren't, aren't you glad I've told you this now? So, yes, it was yesterday or I think it was yesterday. Uh, we're recording on Thursday. I think it was Wednesday where he was speaking and he said, you know, my father was born in Germany. And it's apparently like third or fourth time he said his father was born in Germany. His father was born in New York. And then instead of saying origins, he said oranges. That what I feel like I feel a little. I feel like that's kind of maybe a New York thing. I don't feel that. Yeah, that's why I've always I've always like defended you glad, you bigly know. as I think he's saying big league. And yeah, it's just that's, a, like that's, an accent. I feel like I'm gonna error. just chalk that up to Queens. You know, having some Queens in me myself. So, but the not knowing where your dad is born, I feel. Is That's something. an interesting one. It's an interesting it's thing. one. So I have. So I haven't missed anything else. Okay. Well, I feel like that must I'm a little be something. disappointed. Are you going back to like research? I don't know like, what, what I should I like to be keeping some kind of file of like things to remind <laughs> Chris and have it on Twitter. But oh, somebody tweeted us like a cartoon of like you know someone like a stick figure telling the other stick figure like you've missed something on Twitter, and the other person's like, "What? Something horrible? I need to go check it out." And then like jumps out the window into like a like a garbage can or something. And I was like, I'm like, oh, that is that is kind of what we're doing. So I'll be getting back on Twitter um, after Easter, which I believe is two weeks from now, I think. Yeah. Ron Burgundy? No, something Easter like is Easter's three weeks from now. Mm. It will be just in time for the 20th anniversary of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Right. Uh, buckle up, Tim Carney, my editor at the Washington Examiner, because I'm 1,000% going to file a column entitled, Actually, Episode One: The Phantom Menace is Great. <laughs> the hottest take I've ever filed for the Examiner. So, Tim, if you're listening, you got a couple weeks to like, Everybody buckle Everybody likes a up. good hate click article. Oh, God, I'm so excited to write this column. You've never written I've a really, hate click I've article. I've been writing this column in my heart for two decades, so it's like, it's time. So, yeah, you need to get this story out of you. It's time to let it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's good to be back. Last week, I was in uh, Louisiana. Um, had some really good food. Uh, now that I'm back, again, the only thing I've been using Twitter for is posting pictures of Wally. Mm-hmm. Um, I may continue to mostly do that as as we've 
we've said. Like yeah. there are a couple things that I'm sad that I've missed. A few big like echelons had some fun announcements, but I haven't like been able to tweet right. them and things. So there will be like a f- small flurry of activity on Easter when Lent the Lenten barricade resolves. But um yeah, I'm I'm mostly not missing it. Yeah, no, that's good. It's I mean Seems nice. (laughs) Must be nice. (laughs) Must be nice to not have to follow Twitter for the both of us like I'm doing. So let's talk about this week's top lines. We are going to dig into some polling on Trump's traits. We've talked about this a couple times on the show, but we've got some updated information on how people are perceiving Trump's personality. We'll dive a little bit into the full collection of polling uh, on the Mueller report and its aftermath. Um, We'll talk a little 2020, and then we'll do some city politics, talk a little about people's thoughts in New York City. And then we will be discussing Chicago, the mayor's election, Lori Lightfoot won, and Margie, one of her partners. Jason McGrath, our VP out of Chicago, is going to be on the show to talk about the polling in that race. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about NATO, a little bit about the pay gap. uh, And then we're going to close out the show on the final four, which I am normally the pollsters sports ball expert. And I'm a little I'm a little disconnected from but we'll muddle through. We'll make we might it be work. meeting. It's kind of like Twitter. We're like meeting somewhere <laughs> at the bottom. <laughs> okay. So first, Trump, you know, it's kind of this. I mean, look, it's the same. Low 40s. 43%. Yeah. Teeny bounce from last week. Yeah. It is what it is. It's not, not a ton to say on that. It, I mean, it doesn't seem that there's some sort of like Mueller report effect happening in his approval rating. Yes. This is... I do not believe a strong driving issue for most voters. Had it been a dramatic conclusion, somehow, possibly, maybe. It may be in the in the report somewhere. Well, there may be something yeah, dramatic in the report. So we'll see. But but for 300 now, pages. there have been. But remember, I mean, there was the moment when Don Jr. was like, hey, here's the emails from when I met with Russians in Trump Tower. And even that didn't like move numbers because people just kind of shrugged and viewed it through their partisan lens. So when it comes to polling on the Mueller report, which we'll get to later, I mean, there is broad consensus that the report should be released. There's some variation based on how you ask the question. Um, But it does not appear that the Mueller report itself has moved his numbers a great deal one way or the other. And it's a sort of thing where like playbook today had like, oh, this has been a really bad 24 hours for Trump. But it's the sort of thing where like coming from the polling world. Well, there's the, this conversation up here. There's a, you know. Margie's waving foot. her arms above her head. <laughs> help us, the, help us. For folks listening at home. <laughs> and then there's the like, you know, he said oranges instead of oranges conversation, right? And then there's the like big picture, what is happening. And that just is less subject to these twists and turns. Yeah. Which I feel like has been one upside of my Twitter fast has yeah. been that the things that are more likely to actually move numbers are the things that are making their way into my world daily. Right. So you can like open up a door and there's just like screaming hellscape and close it briefly <laughs> and open it up. It's still there. Yep. Still there. That's basically Twitter and how I feel about <laughs> The current administration. But anyway, um, so Pew has released some numbers that I think are interesting in that 
They look at traits. And these are the kinds of things that, you know, we talk a lot about how internal candidate polling will ask about all kinds of traits in a way that you don't often see in public polling. I mean, you do sometimes. And so this is an example of what that might look like for an internal candidate poll. You know, how well do each of these things describe Trump? And they have all kinds of different metrics. And, you know, some of them are I guess they're they're all positive. Sometimes it's, you know, there's like a research question of whether you have mix up positive, positively worded things with negatively worded things or do you have them in different categories. Anyway, so all of these positive traits here stands up for what he believes, able to get things done, strong leader, keeps promises, well-informed, cares about people like me is sort of the, you know, perennial one, good manager, trustworthy and even-tempered. I read those in order. I didn't randomize them for us. They're in the order of most descriptive to least descriptive. That even-tempered one is low. But I wonder, has it all... So my my big question is, like, for any of these, have there been shifts over time? Um, And there are... On some of these questions, there's been very little movement. So take, for instance, Pew gives us a trend line for views of Trump's respect for the nation's democratic institutions before the election and after the election. Where do people stand? And before the 2016 election, 40 percent of Americans thought he cared a great deal or a fair amount uh, about the country's democratic institutions. You know what the number is now? It's 40 percent. Before the 2016 election, it was 59 percent. Now, it's 59 percent. Like the numbers have barely wobbled. And they are suspiciously close to his approval ratings. Yeah. So if you like Trump, you think, yeah, he's he's not like tearing down democracy. And then if you don't like Trump, you think, yeah, he does not really care about democracy too much. These things seem pretty, pretty strongly aligned. So I wonder, I mean, that even tempered number yeah, 69% say, no, he is not even-tempered. Only 28% say he is. I imagine that's that kind of core 28% that that's the if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue crew. It, um, it, that comes from like a really big difference um, uh, on that even-tempered item among Republicans compared to everything else. So yeah. if you look at all these different traits and they break it out by party, and some of them have, are really very divergent in terms of – I mean, they're all pretty divergent, obviously, between how D's and R's rate him. The most divergent one is on this empathy, cares about people like me. 81% of Republicans say, yep. 10% of Democrats say, yeah. But even tempered, that that gap between D's and R's is much smaller. So 15% of D's agree with that and 44% of Republicans. So that's where Republicans are like, well, maybe not. So yeah. Much the one. other one where he has a little bit of a dip among Republicans is well-informed, where it's only 74%, which you have a significantly higher chunk of Republicans that approve of him overall. So the two places where his own fellow partisans are like most likely to kind of go, eh, well, but is on uh, the well-informed and on even-tempered. But they but they believe, I mean, 82% think he can get things done. 85% of Republicans think he's a strong leader. So there are things where Republicans go, look, I mean, he he's not totally my cup of tea, but he's, get, he's putting points on the board for stuff I care about. Yeah. Well, able to get things done doesn't mean that Hashtag they care about him. Corsage. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that they care about so able to get things done. You know, Dem- you know, Democrats can say he's able to get things done. It doesn't mean that they're things that they care about. But yes, I, I hear what you're saying. Stands up for what he believes is the one where Democrats give him, you know, the best ratings. So that's one that has a, a slightly smaller DNR gap where a majority of Democrats, yeah, well, say he stands up for what he believes. 
you don't have to agree with it. You could just say, well, he stands up for what he believes. Um, there was a thing, I think I'm quoting this correctly. I just, it passed by my Twitter feed. It's like a tease from the upcoming book by uh, Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman, um, the uh, the folks who do Playbook and Politico. And so there was, so I think, I hope I have this all right. Sorry, this was just like kind of in the air around me. So um, uh, I'm waving my hands again above my head. <laughs> Help me. So, um, it, but it was like, Trump was in a meeting, like on infrastructure or something, and he was oh, taking this is notes. Sloppy Steve. Yeah, and they're like, people are like, "Wow, Trump is really engaged. He's taking notes on the briefing." But he was just writing like <laughs> different. Steve Bannon sucks, and here are the <laughs> ways in which I'm going to destroy him. Yes. Question. Question for a Democrat: Does that make you? More or less favorable to the president that he was constructing a list of here's reasons why Steve Bannon. I don't like him. I I mean, like, that's a complicated. No, one for- it's not complicated. <laughs> I mean, you want you want to believe that the president of the United States is like incredibly able to process like the, a billion pieces of information and is like the best listener in addition to all the other things they have to do because they're like constantly getting like briefed and they have to synthesize like all the work that everybody in the whole, you know, government and country is doing into like what their decision will be. And um, and to think that you're not listening to this instead, you're just writing like mash notes, like you know, hate notes to Steve is like presidents. They're just like us. <laughs> I mean, I do when we were in high school. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I do. I suppose. I mean, look, everyone's been in a meeting where they're like, I I would like to be doing something else than being in that meeting. Everyone has been in that situation at some point in, in their life. Um, but I feel like the reason why infrastructure week has not happened <laughs> is because infrastructure hour <laughs> was a dead. Right. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. So the last thing that I thought was an interesting tidbit from this this pupil is they ask um, this question about, do you believe that Trump has acted unethically? And y- Democrats, like 93 percent of Democrats say, yeah, Trump has definitely or probably acted unethically. So no surprise. I was surprised by the Republican number. Mm. 45% of Republicans say Trump has either definitely or probably acted unethically. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess that's consistent with the volume of information we have seen that suggests a large piece of the GOP goes, yeah, he's, you know, insert negative adjective here, but he's our, insert negative adjective here, guy. Right? Like, that. they're like, yeah, he's probably done some unethical things, but... Right. They're they're, they're not, you know, I I think for a lot of Republicans, they're not saying I don't believe any of these, you know, there's nothing true about any of these stories. They've just, you know, said, well, this is things lots of people do or it matters to me less because of X, Y and Z. I mean, we heard this in the focus groups that we did days before the special counsel investigation closed that Molly Ball wrote about that we talked about last week. So we heard some of that in the Republican group, too. It wasn't like everybody in the Republican group said there's no way any of this, you know, happened. So but anyway, speaking of the investigation and. Let's talk Mueller. Unethical. There's been lots of this is from our friend and spirit animal, Ariel Edwards Levy. Great compiler of polling, wording, charts, and ranking them by percentages of, like, which polling wording makes people most and least likely to take a particular position. Yeah. Uh, On this chart, uh, sort of 
ranks, what is this? This is like almost 10 different ways to ask the should the Mueller report be public question. Yeah. With responses ranging from 84% saying, yes, I want it released, all the way down to 57% saying they want it released. So the big difference in the wording, the, the question wording that gets the most, yes, please release the report, are Quinnipiac, pretty much straightforward. Do you think that special counsel Robert Mueller's report should be released to the American public or not? 84%. And I actually think that if you went to Congress and asked, should Mueller's report be public, you would hear that that kind of response too. Right. The I think if you is, had like should blank be public, the response is going to usually be yeah. Very yes. few people are like nah, don't <laughs> unless um, it's like your you know social security number or something. Yeah. Um, Washington Post, um, their polling has it at eighty three percent. The way they word is public in its entirety. Um, the the one that gets the lowest response is Reuters Ipsos, which asks, which comes closest to your opinion about the information regarding the Mueller report released to date? I still have questions and would like to see the full report released to the public versus I have learned all I want to know and do not need to see the full report. And on that one, it's 57 <laughs> percent. Aren't you just finger guns to me? Yeah, and I'm double barreled. Is that a little double barrel? I it is. Oh, <laughs> is that what that is? <laughs> like, why is Margie finger guns? I don't me? know. I'm having some issues. No, I don't know. Clearly, okay. I'm like I need to like strap my hands down. Yeah. It, no, you're right. This it's double barreled, but, but in a way so that interesting. is interesting. Yeah. I have questions and would like to see the full report released to the public. I have learned all I want to know and do not need to see the full report. That's kind of asking two things. Right. You can theoretically be like, I still have questions, but I don't need to see the full report. Or you could be like, I don't have any more questions. But let's but but why not release it? Why not release it? So you could you could be a combination yeah. of the two. But anyhow, this one only fifty seven percent say, I still have questions. And would like to see the report public. I think so. So that's interesting. I think that's an important differentiator of that question. And it's the one where there's, you know, a, a smaller majority, but still a majority. I mean, there's nothing in here that suggests that people are like, yep, you know, I'm good with three pages or four pages. Like people want to, you know, there is clear evidence that people think that the report should be released. Yeah. Well, and, and Barr has said, and so this is where for pollsters listening, I am curious what this next tranche of questions will be. Barr has said he's going to release the report. The question is, there will be redactions. And there are a couple different types of redactions that are legally required. Things like anything about sources and methods from the intelligence community. Um, things about ongoing investigations that they don't want to reveal. I would like to see, do people think, like, what do people think about those categories of redactions? Mm. Because there's another category of redactions that's a little more controversial, which is that they will redact anything that could implicate a third party who has not been charged. That could mean that someone's grandma who was picked up on a wiretap is not going to be outed and dragged through the mud because she didn't do anything. She was just incidental. Or it could mean that, like, Don Jr. did something that people don't wouldn't like but wasn't a crime, and does that get redacted? And so that's the, the debate, is when Barr says we're going to redact things about third parties that are incidental – you can interpret that a lot of ways. And will that be overused, underused, what have you? And so that's where I think the interesting public opinion question is next, is he said they're going to release the full 400 pages. It's just going to be redacted to, in his words, I think, comply with legal standards. But 
there's still some wiggle room. That sounds there. like a really exciting polling question. Right? Oh yeah. So I've just I've just taken up half your questionnaire with the explanation of what the heck I'm talking about. about there's got to be a way to ask legally it. required redactions. But yeah, like okay. I mean, Responded instead of asking, line, do you like, want the report what? to be public? Like, the report is going to be public. Right. So that's like a less interesting question. Ask Should they blo- scratch out things that like what may embarrass people close to Trump? Yeah. Um. If if those people have not yeah. been charged with a crime. Yeah. You know, should information about them, none, if it would be embarrassing but not legal. Like, right. these are things that I don't think people are spending a ton of time thinking about, but would be more illuminating about where this might go once the Barr report or the Mueller report is released in its 400 redacted pages. Then where do people go? Because that's going to be that's going to be what people fight about for the next however long. God help I us. I look forward to all that. I don't. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Jason McGrath about Lori Lightfoot. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online, so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Okay, so now I'm very excited that we have Jason McGrath, who runs our Chicago office. And so Jason, and I'll tell Chris, I guess now I'm telling everybody, um, I have not, I have three business partners. I have not invited any of them on the show. In fact, I don't even want them to listen to the show. I would prefer they not listen to the show. One of them said, um, is the show on like at a regular time each week? I'm like, yes, Sunday at 3 a.m. It's totally it's not fine. <laughs> but anyway, now then later figuring that out, he's like, I've listened to the show. I'm like, well, I'm just going to tell Richard you're to block you, which is not a thing, you know, <laughs> but just in case that'll happen. And then one of the other ones said, um, uh, can you call in or do you have to be in the studio? I was like, oh, thank God that means you don't listen to the show if you do not know that somebody can call in. So anyway, Jason is here and he has an in- great history of working on some fantastic races in the Midwest. He worked with Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer out of Iowa and just this week worked with mayor-elect of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. It's so so exciting, I think. It's the first black woman mayor of Chicago and I think the the mayor of the – the largest city that is represented by a mayor who's openly LGBT. Um, and so that's all very exciting. So, Jason, thanks for coming on the pollsters. Are you going to talk about Lori Lightfoot a little bit? Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm curious, as someone who did not follow this race as closely because uh, there are not a ton of Republicans in the running for being mayor of Chicago, uh, walk me through a little bit about how this race sort of played out, how your candidate was able to sort of figure out this is the lane I'm going to run in, this is how I'm going to make my pitch to voters. Walk me through sort of the 101 about this race and how you all sort of approached it strategically. So it was just one of those standard races where you start off running against one of the most powerful uh, leaders in the country and end up in a 14-way race um, with no clear favorite and you're at 3% five weeks out and then you end up with 74% um, at the end of the day. So just one of those stories. But it was (laughs) was quite a ride. Um, 
Uh, Lori got into this race last May. Uh, she had been preparing a little bit before that, but um, she had some concerns with the direction of the city, as did many voters. And um, she decided she would throw her hat into the ring against Mayor Emanuel. Um, <clears throat> that was the plan. And in September of last year, Mayor Emanuel sort of changed the plan on everybody by deciding that he was not going to run for a third term. And so what that ended up doing was kind of opening the floodgates for a number of um, of prominent figures to enter the race, including a statewide elected official, um, the county board president, and even a daily. Um, and we've had plenty of those in Chicago over the years. And it sort of took Lori from one of the, probably one of the, the most likely opponents of Mayor Emanuel to just one of the 14 people uh, running. And so we had an opportunity at that point to sort of rethink what our strategy would be. Um, and, um, you know, Lori's rationale for running and her her you know her her vision for the city never quite changed. But um, as sometimes happens in campaigns, the, the the race changed dramatically around us, and so she had to react to that. If there are fourteen people running, this is a question that plagued Republican pollsters in the twenty sixteen primary. That's going to plague Democratic pollsters in the twenty twenty primary. With a field that large, from a polling execution perspective. How do you figure out what the state of play is in a field that is that large? Well, you have to be somewhat subjective and, and probably a, a little bit disrespectful to a few of the candidates that you don't include in your in your uh, questionnaire. Um, there were a few of the 14 candidates who we had reason to believe would probably and ended up polling in the very low single digits, um, sometimes around one. Um, and so when we put our, you know, our, our, our questionnaire together, we probably focused on the, the top eight to 10 contenders. Um, and then it, it's, it's really difficult in that wide of a race. What we're, we're trying to do with 14 candidates is obviously find our block, uh, find our voters, people who are most likely to, um, who, who are most likely to, you know, want to respond to her message. Uh, I can talk about some of the, the scenarios that happened in the race that, that sort of gave us some direction and, and set Lori apart from the other candidates. Um, the most notable probably was the indictment in early January of Alderman Ed Burke, who has been on the city council since 1969 um, and who has been incredibly influential and powerful and uh, was indicted for extortion. Uh, some of the major candidates in the race were closely tied to Alderman Burke. Uh, Lori was not. Um, Lori's a former federal prosecutor. She's put corrupt alderman in jail before. Um, and that was sort of a, a really nice contrast with a lot of the other folks who had uh, who had decided to run. Um, one of the things from a polling perspective that you know, we tried to do, which I, I thought was pretty useful, was in our survey instrument, not only did we give uh, messaging to all the candidates and do your standard A-B splits, et cetera, to figure out what might be most compelling, obviously uh, trying to stay within the frame of, of the race that Lori wanted to run, um, is uh, we did a, a zero to 100 exercise where we asked people how likely they were to vote for Lori Lightfoot. We then read them a whole bunch of information and uh, asked them again. Uh, and the, those who ended up being most likely to increase their likelihood of support became sort of our target audience. And then on election day, the first election day in February, they became the backbone of our support. So that way, I mean, the horse race is obviously important because that's 
how people vote. They're not voting based on a variety of different scales of likelihood. But still, if you have a lot of folks who are, as I'm assuming you had, in single digits, you know, how do you really figure out what the relative strength is of different candidates? And, And that's one way to do it. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's not the kind of thing you always see in public polling, but it has analytical utility if you're trying to really figure out what's going on beneath the surface with such a big candidate field. Um, what do you talk a little bit about um, uh, Lightfoot's background on uh, police and police accountability? And, and that's a particular issue for folks in Chicago. And, you know, is that something that you saw and it seemed like that was a big part of our message? Yeah, Chicago has had a, a, a somewhat complicated history between um certain communities, especially communities of color and the police department. Um, there, uh, there was a very high profile incident, um, that happened a few years back where an, uh, a 17 year old, I'm sorry, a 16 year old boy was, was shot 14 times, um, by uh, a police officer and it made obviously national news. Um, and it highlighted the, um, the, the real, the real problem that this was and had developed into in, in many neighborhoods who had known this for a long time, but sort of shown it shined the light for, for everybody else. It probably led directly to the loss of the former state's attorney in a race in 2016. Um, and it, in many, many ways changed perceptions of Rahm Emanuel as well, who was the mayor at the time um, in both 2011 and 2015 mayor Emanuel won uh, election in large part on the backs of African-American voters um, who chose him overwhelmingly in the second round in 2015 and as he left the Obama White House back in, in 2011. And those, um, you know, his standing with that community had eroded significantly and we saw that back in uh, in 2018 in our polling. Um, but Lori's background uh, was almost tailor-made for this type of uh, a race. If you had to create a, a candidate in a laboratory um, who could finally make Chicago ready for reform, she would look a lot like Lori Lightfoot. Um, not only is she a, a woman of color and, and openly gay, which, um, as you said at the outset, is, is historic in its its own right, um, but she is a former federal prosecutor. Um, she has worked extensively in the world of um, police accountability and reform. She chaired the Police Accountability Task Force, which issued over 100 separate recommendations for ways to improve relationships between police and the, and the communities here in Chicago. She served as the president of the Chicago Police Board, which has uh, final oversight for reprimanding police officers accused of misconduct. Um, you know, she has credibility on these issues in a way that no one else has. Um, and I think her challenge in the campaign was to evolve beyond that and to give voters a sense that those um, areas of expertise, while extremely important, did not amount to the sum total of what she could offer in a different direction for Chicago. Uh, and that was part of what we we had to uh, reckon with when we designed our survey instrument and, and put together the ads and, and the, the message for this campaign. To what extent, if any, I mean, if you are somebody that does not follow Chicago politics closely, the story out of Chicago that you probably have heard about most over the last couple of weeks is the Jesse Smollett, the story about, uh, you know, 
his the alleged attack and then the the two brothers and and what have you and sort of whether and you know sort of the differences between the police and their view of how this case should be handled versus the charges being dropped to what extent if any did that story play a role or shape anything in this race or was it is that sort of completely separate you know, I think what it did in this race. So on February 26th, we um, we finished first out of 14 candidates with 17 and a half percent, which was, I think, a huge shock. Um, and what we saw in our immediate survey right after the uh, first round was that uh, Lori, coming sort of out of nowhere to many people's surprise, um, became this this figure of of real fascination, and people were really excited to learn more about her. She had a very positive standing. She had nearly four to one favorable, unfavorable ratio, which is not where she or anybody else was before the first round. Um, and we saw that in late January that no candidate was really well regarded. Um, at that point, there had been a lot of negative advertising. There had been a lot of back and forth. All the candidates were kind of lukewarm to underwater in our, in our research, which gave us the confidence that this was an unsettled field that we could emerge from. Once we got to the second round, um, Lori was incredibly popular. Uh, she had opened up a roughly 30-point lead over Tony Preckwinkle uh, from the get-go because this became a change versus more of the same elect- election, and she was change uh, in every way, shape, and form. And so with her embodying that, uh, anything else that happened in the news over the course of those five weeks sort of only served to, to freeze the race in amber, right, and to um, it, not distract voters because obviously they're very focused on the uh, election, but big stories like the Smollett case and other things that might've been happening with the Mueller report and other things in the news, um, kind of sucked up some of the oxygen that Tony Preckwinkle would have needed to, um, to cut into our advantage or to change the narrative in a way that would have, uh, favored her campaign. Uh, our campaign was aggressive. Uh, Lori was right on message the entire time. Our ads were, uh, I think, effective in laying out the differences between the two candidates. And as people were focused on other things, there was really no time or no opportunity for Preckwinkle to um, to to have a different conversation that she wanted to have. And so after we sort of you know, were launched out of a cannon on February 26th, it's kind of where the race ended up. Um, and at some point, uh, Preckwinkle's resources dried up and we were on television without her. And I think that really is what led to the extremely wide margin that we saw on Tuesday night. Yeah. I mean, people like it, it was definitely making news where I would be out and like here in Washington and somebody would say, I hear Preckwinkle's not on the air anymore. I mean, the, like people were definitely closely following it. And, it, you know, once things started to break in Lightfoot's direction in terms of endorsements and, you know, people feeling like she had advantages, that just continued. That's just, you know, that that just continued to to build for her in a way that ended up with her being, you know, successful. Yeah, no, it, it, it really was a stampede. And, and part of that was just this unbelievably wide. So Chicago's such a diverse city, both in terms of race, obviously, but also ideology. And uh, there's a lot of different um, communities of interest. Uh, and Lori was getting support from all of them. And I think that's how you win 50 out of 50 wards and 99% of the precincts in the city. Um, there are um, wow. there are communities that are heavy with um, police officers and city employees and teachers that are traditionally maybe more moderate, a little bit more conservative. And we were winning eight or nine out of 10 of those. And then there are progressive wards um, that are 
probably predominantly white, where we were winning 70% of those. And then on the South side with African-Americans, um, you know, we didn't do quite as well as Preckwinkle in the first round. Um, but Lori won all of those awards as well, including um, uh, President Preckwinkle's home award, which we won by 20 points. I, I know that the race was about a lot more than this, but I just think it's so great for women's uh, political leadership um, and for African-American women's political leadership that the two folks who emerged and went on to the runoff were both African-American women, I just think is awesome. And um, I'm so excited that you got to like that you had a part of it. It was so great. So, Jason, why don't you tell us where people can find you on Twitter and what else you're up to? Well, as many of your listeners probably know you can one of the places you can find me is gbaostrategies.com um right. very very proud for that o I, to, don't to crash finally our be website <laughs> <laughs> we got that oh we finally got the o. um and uh, i'm also on twitter at jason m mcgrath at uh, i guess at twitter i don't know how that works at jason m mcgrath yeah so. people figure it out yeah you know i think you know twitter everybody <laughs> understands twitter and podcasts except for your three partners <laughs> um yeah so anyway jason's always uh working on uh interesting stuff in the midwest so t- definitely take a look thank you all right thanks guys appreciate it thanks have a good one yeah you too bye-bye okay so that was fun to talk to jason i felt like as we were interviewing and we both got ill or somehow <laughs> we were both coughing and sneezing and now we are like 10 percent more ill than when we started no i'm i'm good i was just i was trying to hold it in and yes. i think it was like i was trying to i know when it's just you and me talking if like someone needs to cough we can just stop but right you know i know i felt remote. like we were, <laughs> we were both like, like coughing and sneezing into the mic anyway it was fun listening to jason talk about Lori lightfoot there's some new polling out of new york city about what's going on in new york this is quinnipiac i don't know if folks listen to i'm sure folks who listen to us just listen to us as their main podcast information but there's also the daily from the new york times and they had a really interesting episode about stuyvesant and and the elite public schools in new york city stuyvesant bronx science and and others um and so there's a poll from quinnipiac in new york city that that builds on that. Oh, yeah. So this this was of interest to me because I remember back in my old high school debate days, the Bronx Science and Stuyvesant teams were always amazing. And I believe my very first boss in D.C., Dave Winston, is a Stuyvesant grad. Mm. Raihan Salam, my fairy godfather, he's a, like I mm-hmm. all of these people. I know so many people that I'm like, you're a genius. And they went to Stuyvesant. And I just I never knew like, but how do you get into Stuyvesant? Like, how does that all work? And mm-hmm. that it is based. I just didn't really realize like it's just based on this one test. It's not like a full application or anything. Yes. Or is- and did you listen to the you should listen to the daily for I will okay. summarize it briefly um and it what was fat so this this poll i think simplifies it, it, the issue a little bit which is you know you you've had the recent pub, um uh publicity around the percentage of uh ent- entry students going in who are african american and it's 10% even though the students who are in the public school system in new york city is much much larger than that and does that mean that the application process should be based on other things other than the test? And that is causing, you know, people – it causes a debate because there are schools – I mean, there are kids and families who have spent a lot of time sort of thinking about the test. Is the test something that p- some people see as well? Then there's just one way. There's the test and that's it. And then – but what was in the uh, – the daily episode was just even awareness about the test was is so uneven. So that's 
not really represented in these questions. And it's not because of Quinnipiac. It's just that's a that's a very complicated conversation to have um, that takes more than one or two questions uh, on a poll um, where, you know, there were some students who got like a tap on the shoulder and some communities from a teacher like, hey, there's a test coming up in a couple weeks. You should take it versus some students whose parents have been helping them practice for the test for years before the test. And so it's not simply, you know, does the test help some communities or others? If if some kids don't even learn about the test and other kids spend a lot of time studying for the test, it's not, you know, there's something else beyond the test, good or bad, that's happening. So that's, I think, what's interesting, you know, particularly interesting about the debate that is not totally reflected in um, these questions. So in the question, they ask, you know, should it should admission still be about a single test procedure or should it consider other factors? 36 percent say keep it a single test. 57 percent say consider other factors. Age appears to be a particularly important variable that uh, has a relationship here where for younger people, they are much more likely to say consider other factors where for those 65 and up, they're pretty split. 45 percent say keep the single test. 48 percent say consider other factors. Kind of lines up with research I've done totally separately, but on what do millennial parents want out of public schools for their kids and where they're it's not that they totally hate tests, but they think there needs to be a multifaceted way of evaluating what's a good school, how's a child's education doing. Like it's not that right. you should get rid of tests entirely, but that we need a more complicated or multifaceted view of things. Right. And so you and you're really seeing that reflected in the younger respondents here in this poll too. Right. Right. So uh, what are, what are we looking at here when we ask questions about this? Are we judging people's views toward testing? Or are we judging people's views toward what they think is a fair or unfair process for getting into these schools? And there's another question that follows up where it says, as you may know, only 10.5% of admission offers to these schools go to black and Latino students. It says, would you support or oppose changing the admissions process if it meant increased diversity at those schools? Then you're kind of layering into this. Does that sound like you're talking about affirmative action or race-based admissions? And does that kind of – because it's not what the question says the change would be, but are you raising that? Because all of a sudden you see a big drop in – you see Republicans, like half of them saying like, no, keep the test as – as it is, which in the previous question, it was 58 percent said keep the test as it is. So you you don't see too much movement. But right. it was it was interesting. Like it's clearly introducing a message to say, hey, here's a bad downside of the t- keeping it test only. Does this move you? And for Republicans, there's really only like an 8 percent shift when you frame it that way. Well, I'll, I'll add another layer to this, which is what do we mean when we say diversity? Because the schools right now are disproportionately Asian compared to the students in the public school system overall. So that's also diversity too. So so that's adding another layer in how we think about these words. So I just, I thought it was fascinating that there's a whole poll question just about these schools where I'm like, hey, they have really good debate. (laughs) Like the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, Anyhow, there's lots of questions in here, too, about um, subways, about traffic congestion. Um, When you ask people to rate the quality of New York City subways, it is younger people who are more likely than older people to say that the subways are poor. But it is also younger people who are less likely than old people to say that they uh, think that traffic congestion is bad. So young people more frustrated about the subways than older people, less frustrated about traffic congestion. Hmm. Anyhow, 
There's a small little difference, but I'm always looking at that crosstab. So. Yes. Um, if the key to Kristen's heart is an age crosstab. But last but not least, they asked a question about Amazon and Amazon canceling its plans to bring its new headquarters to New York's Long Island City. Do you approve or disapprove of Governor Cuomo and prominent New Yorkers trying to convince Amazon to revive its plan? Big age gap here. The older you are, the more likely you are to say, yes, we're glad Governor Cuomo is trying to like convince Amazon to come back. But for 18 to 34-year-olds, they are split right down the middle, 56-56. So that AOC vibe. Lots of young people kind of in the, oh, I don't know about Amazon boat. But everyone who's older is like, yes, please bring Amazon here. What are you guys doing? <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So... Now we're going to take another break, and then we'll come back and talk about 2020 and U.S. world, U.S. role abroad. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups, it would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Welcome back to The Pollsters. We are now going to talk a little bit about 2020. Uh, The big story this week has been about Uh, Former Vice President Joe Biden, is he going to jump in if he does? How will his uh, decades of very close personal contact with people, how will that go down in the era of hashtag Me Too? There have been a number of women who have come out with stories not alleging that they are hashtag me too victims, but rather that they just had uncomfortable interactions with Biden. And how will that uh, shape his position? So right now, Biden tops the list of candidates Democrats are comfortable with for 2020. This is according to the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. I kind of like the way that they've asked this instead of saying, who are you going to vote for? It's just sort of gauging comfort level, like Okay, how how at this moment would you feel about? Well, them that's being not that different from what Jason was talking about about how you te- like as opposed to a horse race question. Exactly, looking at different individual rankings instead of one question comparing everybody. And there is uh, for Joe Biden, you have seventy three percent of of Democrats who say they Democratic primary voters who say that they would be comfortable. Um, with Biden being uh, the nominee Uh, for Bernie Sanders. He kind of comes in second, but also has a much bigger chunk of people that say they have reservations or are just flat out uncomfortable with him being the nominee. Mm -hmm. You have a couple candidates, the Kamala Harris's, the Beto O'Rourke's, where you have a sizable chunk that say, look, I don't know them. I'm not sure. So still time for this to shake out. But among the two kind of big marquee names that everyone's heard of, um, more Democratic primary voters at the moment seem comfortable with Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders. Sanders will be interesting to see if these numbers move 
in the in response to his sort of delayed, but then eventually he put out a video kind of apologizing for his past behavior and saying he wants it to be different. Is this something that will move numbers or is this just something that is not really going to change people's views? We'll know in a week or two. But at the moment, in a in a reasonably strong position, um, only 33 percent of Democrats say they'd be enthusiastic uh, about him. Um, but you do have 40 percent then who say comfortable. I mean, I think, you know, look, at some point, I suppose we will be paying closer attention to these numbers. But right now, you know, I think the challenge for folks who are writing about 2020 polling numbers is to make sure we're not over analyzing or over interpreting tiny differences. So there was a, like a clicky headline like, Pete Buttigieg is soaring. He went from like one to two or two to three or whatever it was. And, um, uh, and but I thought last week in that Iowa poll, he was actually in double digits. Yeah. I mean, this is not to say that he is not, you know, in the made, hashtag Mayor Pete's defense. <laughs> made, no, no. And, and I know and this is about the polling coverage. Yeah. This is not about Mayor Pete at all. This is about the polling coverage in that same clicky headline like yeah. Biden had gone from 35 to 33 or 33 oh, to 31 or whatever. Like, yeah. it, whatever polling it headlines is. are almost always irresponsible yeah. if they're not written. And, by and everyone, polls. this is one of the things you missed on Twitter because everyone went, no, stop, please. <laughs> don't, don't write these headlines like all the pollster pollsters on Twitter were like, please. Oh, good. Um, I'm glad the, fi- the fight, the good fight is being fought. Yeah. And so I was like, go, I support you. So, uh, you know, so that's that's, I think, just a thing to watch out, Um, by the way. But just sort of just a a little bit of a digression. Um, They asked that same comfortable, enthusiastic kind of question overall with the general election audience. And like Trump's very uncomfortable number, like the most extreme is 50 percent. I mean, that's that's not a good place. Like half of America is very uncomfortable about your candidacy like you know you want to look at intensity of opinion and you know we were like oh what percent of each of these folks is their support is you know enthusiastic versus simply comfortable like half of america is very uncomfortable about the president current president i mean that's incredibly strong position um in the general election sanders has the strongest very uncomfortable compared to the other democratic candidates but they test everybody and obviously this is all still yeah one group that a lot of these uh, folks Sanders new. continues to do well with is young voters, especially young men. Harvard IOP has their uh, semi-annual polling on the kids these days that is out. I always love when they release this. Um, they have they, uh, t- they've taken a look at young people who I believe say that they w- either are Democrats or potential Democratic primary voters. I'm not exactly sure how they sort of figured out the crosstab. But nonetheless, um, what they find is that Bernie Sanders is in the lead among young people at 31 percent. I'm not going to say the decimal place. Uh, Joe Biden in second at 20 percent. Big gender gap on Biden. And actually, it's young women who are much more enthusiastic about Biden than young men at uh, 25 to 16 percent. Mayor Pete, you know, pretty low in this poll, down kind of below Andrew Yang, Three percent of young Democratic men feeling feeling the Andrew Yang. By the way, I should just add at Echelon, I think so. We we love making mugs out of like random Internet memes that we find interesting. Good. I think Patrick's favorite mug is the Bill Mitchell like Trump's victory is not going to be in the data. It's in our hearts, which, <laughs> which he got as like ironic. And then like Bill Mitchell was right. And it was like, oh, wow. So that that mug now sits in our office as like a reminder of. 
you know, don't be too confident, guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was, I think Yang put out a meme that was like, um, a new hope, and it was a picture of Obama, <laughs> and then it was the Empire Strikes Back, and it was a picture of Trump, and then it was like Return of the Jedi, and it was a picture of Yang, and it was like, <laughs> we're putting this on a mug. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Okay, so anyhow, but hold but, on. John Delavolpe, decimal points. I know. It's not AP style. I know. Oh, or is it okay to digression? AP style. Did we talk? We talked about this last week, right? That you can now use a percent. Was this? No, new? we didn't. I just I sent out a blast email to my office, and I was like, "Victory, victory for Team Margie." And yeah. I wrote back, "No." <laughs> I, I I'm torn, but what's, this definitely... what's to be torn by? Think of all the valuable minutes your eye and fingers will save. By I know. Just I've definitely the done the like the percent. Quick we feel digression. Very strongly about it. Quick digression, and then I'll come back to the Harvard IOP poll. When you are writing. A story about <laughs> polling. Inevitably, you will have to write out a variety of different numbers, 34%. And the way that AP Style had suggested you have to write this in the past was that you would say 34, the number, but then space, the word, percent. Ugh. You could not use a percent sign. I, I And so the number of memos I'd written where I'd have to go back afterwards and do find replace Find every percent sign and change it to space. I do the reverse. Word percent. Well, you people do... send me a memo and it word, it's percent spelled out. I replace it with the percent. Oh, sign. you like contract yes. it just for yourself? Just, no, for like to make it easier and snappier for you know reader. Because well, the memos... AP is getting snappy. They're yes. like, use the percent sign. <laughs> uh, Finally, they're ca- catching up with common usage. Anyway, I very I was very pleased about that. I, I think they was... start a sentence with a number that and, I agree with. Well, yeah. Did, what was the AP's verdict on that? Can you start a sentence with a numeral or do you still have to write it out? I don't know, but I'm just going to keep on not doing that. Okay, because I don't like that. I don't like that I think if you're going to say, if you're going to start a sentence with a third instead of one in four, don't use the numeral one, use the word one. Yes. In and then use the numeral four. That's fine or whatever. This is going to be the entire show right now. <laughs> it's like strong our feelings. memo formatting grievances. <laughs> okay, but back to but I approve of the AP's uh, kiboshing of the use of decimal places in like thirty four point seven percent. No, just say thirty five percent. Just round it. Yes. Okay. Back to the IOP poll. Um, a question I get asked a lot is like, oh, is Mayor Pete like doing well with the kids these days? And I think you could you would probably find that there's like some momentum. You know, if you looked at fundraising and whatever, and he's doing well with viral moments online. But if you look at the IOP poll, it's he's not sparked among young people. And I wonder, I got asked this by Dana Perino on her show on Fox earlier this week. Like, is it possibly the case that old Bernie Sanders is appealing to the young people? And that Pete Buttigieg is who, like, old people like. And they're like, oh, he's so young and wonderful. Like, will the young Pete Buttigieg be popular with old people? And will old Bernie Sanders be popular with the kids? And it's kind of the Macron effect, right? Like, in France, Emmanuel Macron, young, energetic, vibrant, I'm going to bring Uber to Paris, blah, blah, blah. It was old people in France that liked him the most. I digress. I'm just, that's... We don't know me, yet. We don't know yet. Way too early, but it would be fascinating to me if all of the, like, oh, young candidates do well with young voters, like, actually, it's totally inverted. It's the opposite. Young people want old people. Old people want young people. We don't know yet. Don't use decimal places when you're writing your <laughs> polling memos. Okay. Very, very important observations. Yes. 
Let's do a, a quick check-in. We've got a little bit of polling on NATO. We'll, we'll hit this fast. We've got some polling on pay gap. Uh, and then we're going to close out the show by talking about Final Four. Uh, just a quick check-in on the NATO polling. Um, this is from Pew. This is from Pew. It's, it's views on foreign affairs. They have a couple interesting questions. One is... Which do you agree with more? Um, should the U.S. take into account the interests of its allies, even if it means making compromises? Or should the U.S. follow its own national interests, even when its allies strongly disagree? Back during the middle of the Obama administration, Democrats were 10 points more likely than Republicans to say, let's take account of our allies' interests. Nowadays, that gap has widened to 34 points, where 69 percent of Democrats and only 35 percent of Republicans say we should take into the int- account the interests of our allies. They also ask, um, would problems in the world be worse without U.S. involvement or do our efforts to solve problems usually make things worse? Um, back in 2017, this was pretty even. Republicans and Democrats, both about six and 10, said the world would be worse if the U.S. was not involved in trying to solve problems. As of now, Republicans, that has spiked. 76% now say the world would be worse without our involvement. And I'm fascinated by this because this runs counter to what Trump often says, which is let's get like let's let them handle their own problems. We've got problems home. Mm -hmm. It was a big friction point within the GOP was that Trump was moving in this more isolationist. Let's retreat from the world. Let's not. And that was controversial. And so the fact that I would assume the Republican Party would shift to match Trump's rhetoric. This is kind of strikes me as the opposite. So that's what stuck out to me. Right. Meanwhile, Republicans, more Democrats say it's better for the future of our country to be active in world affairs. Republicans are less likely to feel that way. There's not a massive party gap there, but it's still a gap nonetheless. And it's wider than it's been in previous years where they've asked this question. So Republicans may feel things would be worse, but that doesn't mean that we should be involved. Yeah. Which is a tough position to have. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the pay gap then. This was this was Equal Pay Day was yes, earlier this week. Equal Pay Day. So Survey Monkey has a question about um, the pay gap, and they say, which do you think is true in the U.S. for doing similar types of work on average? Do men make more money than women? Do women make more money than men? Or there is no difference by gender? Um, both men and women, majority say they think men tend to make more money than women for doing similar types of work. Um they then ask which statement comes closer to your view, even if neither is exactly right. And there's a big gender difference here. Where for men, 58% say obstacles that once made it harder for women to get ahead are now largely gone. Only 36% of women agree. 62% of women instead say there are still significant obstacles that make it harder for women to get ahead than men. Um, The question in this survey that I had the most kind of quibble with is it says, as you may know, on average, women in the U.S. make 81 cents for every dollar men make for doing similar types of work. In your view, which of the following are major reasons for this gender wage gap? Um, And they say unconscious bias, sexism, fewer women in leadership positions, women are generally in careers that don't pay as much. I wanted to flag it because women are generally in careers that don't pay as much. What you've asserted with your statistic is that they're doing similar types of work. So either you've misrepresented the statistic in your question or you've added an irrelevant like because the, the women are generally in careers that don't pay as much as men is something that 
people do say, even conservatives who sort right. of are skeptical well, of the stat, say that's a will say know, that's choice. why. Yeah. But if you are asserting that no, 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 the statistic that we're giving you here is about people in the same careers. I, to me, that struck me as an inconsistency there. I mean, it, the other thing, look, these are, these are tough things, right? They, these also are not mutually exclusive. Women in, uh, you know, fewer women in leadership positions. Well, that's, that's a results rather than the cause because you have sexism and unconscious bias there, but, but fewer women in leadership positions is, you know, not a separate, there's not just like some separate thing that's, you know, related to those other things or you decide as a choice, what have you, which I guess should be one of the answer categories here. Like women would prefer, you know, jobs that, you know, aren't as taxing or they want to spend more time with their family, whatever, whatever, you know, there, there are arguments on the other side that are not, I think, included here. Um, and these are not mutually, so that makes these a little bit mutually, not so mutually exclusive. The question that I found like grading, but it's, I guess it's, you know, it's fun for kind of news as a news hook is what do you think of the reports of the pay gap in the media? Overblown, fake news, politically correct, appropriate, insufficient or other or no answer. Were you allowed to check more than one? I'm like adding these all up in yes. my mind. Yes, and select it... all that apply. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of an odd an odd selection of things to – I mean, look, only – very few people think that it's outright fake news, um, but you have the plurality of men, 30, but, but it's only 31% who say they think this is overblown – 36% of women, that's the plurality there, say appropriate, but then second, this is only four points behind insufficient. It's kind of like a hard question to tease out, like, what's actually going on here? Yeah, yeah. And I, and also, I think we should not have, like, a fake news. I mean, if you are, you know, it, I think there would be a lot of press outlets who would object to including fake news as an answer category. You yeah. know, I know a lot of media outlets are really, you know, cringe at sort of the phrase fake news. Uh, so last but not least is there, they do ask about, um, what would a good policy be to address this? Because there are already a number of laws on the books that make it illegal to discriminate against women, uh, and pay them less. Like there, there have been laws for decades that have said this. You had the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which was the first thing Obama signed um, that made it easier to sue for discrimination. But like since the signing of that law, the pay gap has not changed much like that statistic it's been like a decade and that statistic is still used so okay if those past policy prescriptions did not fix the alleged problem at hand what would what this suggests is it tests the idea of requiring companies with a hundred or more employees to share gender and pay information online with the public or share that information with the government these are somewhat supported uh women support them more than men but then they later on ask would you be willing to have information about your compensation shared with coworkers um or have you ever shared information about coworker uh, your compensation with coworkers fewer than 3 in 10 have um about another quarter says i haven't but i'd be willing to but then about half, including just as many women as men, say no, and I would not be willing to. So that's kind of where the public policy prescription runs into 
Like in the abstract, people may yeah. think, oh, let's do that to solve the problem. But then people go, oh, well, wait a minute. Well, there's a theory that, you know, if you are not negotiating for your salary and you're sharing your salary with other people, then you are minimizing the penalty that women often face for not negotiating or if you or having a lower salary being compounded over the rest yeah. of your career. What I don't think any of these questions get at, which is like the systemic you know, tax on caregiving and that affects women more in a way that, you know, telling everyone what your salary is it doesn't solve. Um, so that's, you know, so that's a separate issue. But I think the main thing that I take away from this, just to go back to sort of the positive, which is men don't think this is much of a problem or it's not happening as much as women do. And that's we see all the time when we test, look at polling of you know, views toward discrimination where the group that's being discriminated against feels it a lot more than the group that's not being discriminated is like, I don't I don't see it, you know, so that doesn't mean it's not happening. Yeah. Uh, so last but not least, we'll talk a little sports ball. We'll just do this quickly. This is geotagged Twitter data of trying to figure out what states support what teams in the final four. So Michigan State knocked out Duke. Duke is a fairly polarizing basketball school. I thought it's unifying and it's like people dislike no. it. Mm. Does it have Oh, like you a- uh yes. It is unifying in that lots of people don't like Duke, I guess. If I had to write like 10 things that I know about any about sports that, that might be people don't like Duke. Yeah, that might be one of so them. So I I tend if to If I could get to 10, enjoy that would be enjoy having things that I like that are counterintuitive and or trolly. Example A, episode one is the sure. greatest Star Wars movie. And epi- episode two, or example two, is Duke. J.J. Redick <laughs> is the greatest shooter of all time in basketball. He played for Duke when I was in college. Uh, I think he's fabulous. He has a podcast on the Ringer Network that is great. He's mm. a wonderful podcaster. Um, and I love him. And he is a, div- perhaps I could say a divisive figure in basketball. So I've always had like this Ironic the, affinity the for Duke of our, of our show. Does he have that kind of like? I, I don't think he's divisive for those kinds. Should, of, no, no. I'm saying like we should make sure we tag him so like all the fans of whoever this guy is I've never heard of can come listen to our show. We're gonna. Uh, <laughs> they're like, why if am JJ I JJ Reddick ever listened to an episode of, of the Posters? I would die of joy. <laughs> I would just die. All right, I think I'll we have to go life. to our next thing. Oh, we, we've got to go to – so we're headed to CNN. I'm going to stop yammering about this. Uh, <laughs> most people want Michigan State to win the Final Four because they beat Duke. Yeah. I'm, there we go. I'm in favor Interesting of poll findings. It's not from polls <laughs> or a finding. Okay. What so, did we learn? <laughs> so Trump is not even tempered, probably unethical, all very legal and very cool. Um, released the report, people say, and Lori Lightfoot, very exciting. Um, the fact that there are so many – LGBT can't. We didn't talk about the NBC thing where like new a larger percentage say they feel comfortable with the LGBT candidate. This like the fact that this is becoming unremarkable is remarkable. So I'm very excited about that. Um, when it comes to discrimination, though, if it's not happening to you, it doesn't mean it's not happening. And if I know one thing about any sport, it's that people love to hate on Duke basketball. But I guess not Kristen, except for me. I did and not JJ know Redick, that about you. The greatest all this shooter time, of all time. I did not know that about you. Oh, but I guess he's. I, He's phenomenal. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Mero. And after Easter, you might be able to find me at, at Kay Sanderson or www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.